0: Americans United is fighting back. Freedom without favor and equality without exception. Learn more about AU at au.org slash curious. In the brand new book, Dear Bi Men, author, peer counselor, and creator of the hashtag BisexualMenSpeak, J.R. Youssef offers an unapologetic guide for readers who are black, mask, and bi. The book features cutting social analysis, personal stories, and reclaims bi plus visibility in a culture of erasure. It also offers practical feedback on how to unlearn internalized biphobia and homophobia, fight back against erasure and stigma, Navigate sex, dating, partnerships, marriage, friendship, and much more. It's available now wherever books are sold. North Atlantic Books is offering listeners 25% off plus free shipping. Purchase Dear Buy Men at www.northatlanticbooks.com and use code CURIOUS25 at checkout for 25% off and free shipping. U.S. mailing address required. Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Benes, and this is my third attempt at saying this, and I'm going to nail it. Every week, I sit down for a 30 minute conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. This week, I'm curious about how to apply ethics to everyday life and what the heck is an ethicist anyway, with our gorgeous friend, Ryan Huber. Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Venice. This week, I'm so excited. We've—I've never. Oh wait, actually, I think I have had a husband and wife duo that one time. So this is our second husband and wife duo. But you know what? I love that story because sometimes you need two. It's a good. It's a good story. Um. So we met gorgeous Jessica, who's composer for Roche. Very, very talented. Taught me all these things about like genres of making noises that I didn't know about. Mm -hmm. Um. And she. And she told me about you, and that's how we met you. And so I'm so excited to have you. And you are a word that I can't pronounce. Mary, I've I'm married to you're an ethicistist. I
1: am an ethicistist. I'm an you're, ethicist. Yep. you're
0: an ethicist. It's true. Mm-hmm. Which is, which is someone who thinks about uh, what's right and wrong. Well. What a time to be alive is what I have to say to that. It's a very exciting time to be an ethicist. Um, and then what's like? What's the training? What, what What do you have to do? So I know that you're a little bit into this. I I do have a PhD. <gasps> Doctors just falling out of my ears. Every time I turn around, i got a doctor in front of my face. Not to be too much of a queen, but I've got
1: two master's degrees and a bachelor's degree and a PhD, and I've spent a a little bit of time in grad school, so it's been fun. Cute. So what made you want to get
0: into ethics?
1: So when
0: Jessica and I were babies, when we were teenagers... yes, because you were going through it. You guys had to like... You guys were in school forever.
1: Yeah, we were in school forever, but we, we got married young. We were at a big church, like very conservative, and I started to have some questions and... Wonderings and you know, the word theology is is basically God talk. It's talking about God, thinking about God. And I started to have these these big questions. And one night we had just gotten married and I was laying awake looking at the ceiling and I was wondering, I said, Jessica, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? And I was asking her all these questions and she said, It's midnight, I don't care, you need to go back to school.
0: <laughs> so many <laughs> fucking questions. Yeah,
1: exactly. So I, I did like a nights and weekends master's degree program while I was teaching history. I was a high school history teacher. And I just couldn't stop after that. Just more questions and more things and discovering and ethics and history and, and theology and philosophy and all these things and just kind of lit me up and made me feel alive. And I love teaching and I love learning. And so it just – I couldn't stop. So, so since I stepped back into the classroom for my first master's the first day in January of 2007, up until last year when I got my PhD when I finished – it was just a straight run, learning, 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 learning. So, you and I share a huge curiosity for the world. So, I'm so excited to be here.
0: My brain is just thinking about baby Jessica and what it would be like to be married to an ethicist. Hmm. Like, someone who studies right and wrong. Yes. Like, it can be a little annoying. I can't imagine. Yeah. You know how sometimes we can get a little nitpicky? We can yeah, I little... think we would be having a domestic honey. <laughs> I'd be, I, would, I think the police, I would be this. Yeah, I can't imagine. But part of being an ethicist, in my opinion, is oh, admitting when you're wrong or something. Yes, cute.
1: It's especially Christian ethics, which is my background. The central message of Christianity is I'm not right, right? Yeah, yeah we're like, yeah we're flawed. Yeah, there's stuff about us that's not right. Yeah, and why grow and learn if you're already perfect, right? So I need to become better, but I can't do that on my own. So part of ethics and asking all these questions is where does community come in? Where does baby Jessica come in? Where does my marriage? Where does my friendships, how about what I read and what I think and my if I pray? You know, these things form us over time, and really that segues into my expertise, which is what's called ethics of formation. Instead of looking at ethics as like, here's your list of rules, here's your you know, just your Ten Commandments, or here's the goals we want. We want this perfect society where everybody's happy. Uh, the ethics I think about is how we become the people that we're becoming. Got it. So like developmental. Yeah. Like we call it formation, but you could also call it character ethics and the ancient. I know that you talked to an amazing art history scholar recently yeah. <laughs> and she talked about Greco Roman culture and in ancient Greece, there's a guy named Aristotle and Aristotle was the star pupil student of Plato and Plato was a star pupil student of Socrates. So you have Socrates, Plato, Aristotle Aristotle developed this thing called virtue ethics and so what I do isn't virtue ethics but it's pretty close and virtue ethics is about finding that ultimate human fulfillment like you know at the end of the day you've done 800 interviews and you've cut hair and you've done all these amazing things you go to sleep and you're exhausted but you're happy that's called eudaimonia in the Greek eudaimonia
0: Love, yeah, eudaimonia. eudaimonia Yeah, so we want to
1: just like get there every day Yeah, every day, at the end of the day, you want to be like, oh, I'm exhausted, but I did something I became more of who I was supposed to be today Well, that's what Aristotle said was the goal for human ethics and development I'm not quite there because Aristotle was a, a Greek baby and I'm a Christian baby, but we have some, some kind of similarities that we're trying to get somewhere. We're trying to be formed into somebody. And um, one of the main differences for me is I don't think you can do that on your own. I think I need you and I need Mary and I need Jessica and I need other people in my life to say, uh, are you sure about that? Mm-hmm. So although it can be annoying to live with an ethicist, if the ethicist is doing it right, they should also be humbling themselves and going and learning so what's the difference between like a christian ethicist and like an ethicist okay so for a long time in the uh, modern era of philosophy let's say let's just be really rough with it 1600 to 1950 okay everyone was saying well let's just do ethics why do we have to do buddhist ethics why do we have to do christian ethics why do we have to have all these words attached let's just do ethics from nowhere well, the problem with ethics from nowhere is that you're still doing ethics from somewhere. You're just pretending like you're doing ethics from nowhere. So all these people, Kant and, and other great philosophers, were saying, let's do a universal ethics, an ethics without that little adjective at the beginning. The problem is everybody thought they were doing universal ethics and then pff, World War II. Mm. one of the reasons World War II happens is ger- the Germans think they're right. The French think they're right. The British think they're right. Everyone thinks they're right because, oh, well, I'm just doing ethics. I'm just doing ethics universally. I'm using logic. I'm using reason. And if you disagree with me, there's two options. You're either stupid or evil. Yeah. And that's why we
0: blow each other up, right? Because yeah. you're stupid or evil. So, Which was true because <laughs> we had like a whole people like – killing everybody yeah twice yeah isn't it crazy we have a World War what was the II? first time what was the well the, but there was was there genocide in World War One? I? I don't I wouldn't say genocide but it was oh yeah there was there the fucking Armenia, was. The there Armenian was there genocide was that you about a few weeks oh ago. my yeah. god there was yes <sighs> we're nightmares. huge world
1: wars. Like nobody called it World War One in the nineteen thirties, right? They called it the War to End All Wars or the Great War. And the irony is now we have a part two. It's the shittiest part two. Oh, am I allowed to say? Yeah, that?
0: Yeah, I've said that word like a it, million times. It's the worst part. Sorry, two. you're like, a, like gorgeous baby <laughs> Christian ethicist, and I can't stop cussing. Oh my god.
1: So, so World War One. You would have thought we would have figured it out. But we didn't. Mm-mm. Everyone still thought they were right. Everyone was still trying to do ethics from nowhere. They're like, I'm u- using rational principles, universal principles. We have this great individual thing. We're thinking. We're building these amazing logic machines that we solve all the world's problems with. The only problem is we got really, really good at a few things, including killing each other. But we didn't – I'm going to go ahead and quote Jeff Goldblum from Jurassic Park. Sure. Love him. We spent so much time trying to figure out if we could that we never stopped to think whether we should.
0: Mm. Oh, yeah. There's a great saying called um, with hair color that my friend Marco taught me Mm that just because you America can doesn't mean you America should. One hundred percent. Yeah. That's ethics. Yeah.
1: That's ethics. Yeah. The, The question of technology and science and advancement is can we? But the uh,
0: the question of ethics is: Should we? Yeah, (laughs) is it a good idea to have hundreds of nuclear weapons? Uh, So what is so? But what does a Christian ethicist do? Like once you get your PhD in like Christian ethicist, (laughs) so
1: I write things. I write chapters of books and and books. I'm I'm converting my dissertation to a book right now for super stuffy library academic types. But Mm -hmm. then hopefully there'll be in a couple years there'll be a paperback run and then try to reach a larger audience eventually. But I also teach. Like this year, I taught a few classes at Loyola Marymount University in Playa and i i teach uh, an ethics of Dietrich Bonhoeffer class for Fuller Theological Seminary,
0: which is what your that 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 the thesis has such a gorgeous thesis. Then mm-hmm. my dissertation is on Bonho- Bonhoeffer, yeah. um, which we're going to talk about him. So growing up, like, is your family super Christian? Like, are you like are you someone who goes to church like Wednesday, Saturday, Sunday? Are you a like
1: mixed bag? We grew up sort of liberal northeastern Protestant. Sort of, you know, you go to church, and my dad didn't really go, but my mom did, and my parents got divorced when I was young, so it was kind of all over the place, and then when I as a teenager, I encountered this, you know, Southern conservative evangelical Christianity, which for me, I know for a lot of people, it, it was crushing and awful. Right. But for me, I encountered a community, people who loved me, people who wanted me to be better, people who called me out on my bullshit. Yeah. And so, although it's totally not perfect and I don't believe several of the things I believed as a teenager in a large evangelical church, for me, it was like a rescue. Like I, I found a sense of self and I, I, like the idea that god loves me was cool and, yeah, and but loved me so much that i'm not perfect and i need you know he wanted to change me you know you i think grew up in and yeah. maybe not as healthy a version of this but something like oh wow this makes me free to be myself which i know is the opposite for a lot of people who grew <sighs> up in conservative Religious.
0: Well, ignorance. I went. I went to this like really cute little Christian like sports camp called Canicuck in Branson, Missouri. Like I mm-hmm. thought. I, I thought I was like we sing mm-hmm. those those really cute Christian songs like those like kind of like you know more poppy ones, honey. Like like you know, YouTube, but for Christians. Yeah. Like I, you know, I think that there was like a totally it, for me it wasn't an issue until I started going to the summer camp and I started like. Realizing, like when we were all taking showers, I was like, "Oh God!" Like, yeah. "Oh, this, this is becoming problematic for yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I'm just yeah. such a raging homosexual." Yeah. Um, and so I, I got, and then I was like, "You know, cheer camp is in the summer. Do I really mm-hmm. want to miss cheer camp for yeah. for G? No, I don't. Uh, my ethics are telling me that I need to get on varsity, mm-hmm. um, and that is not going to happen. Did in you get, Did you get on? Varsity? I sure did. Yes. Yeah, I sure did. 100. Um, but I really need to get those tumbling passes down. Um, back to Dietrich. Bonhoeffer. Okay,
1: so there's three different ways that people say it that I've – I know a lot of Bonhoeffer scholars. And so I kind of mash them up.
0: He's a major guy. He's a major – he's
1: kind of like a Martin Luther King for Germany, Martin Luther King Jr. for Germany because he resisted social evil. He died because of it. He um, has been commemorated. He wrote a lot of important things. So he's a big deal over there. He's a big deal in England. Like when you go to Westminster, you know, where uh, Will and Kate – got married. So there's statues of all these saints, all these people who have died for their faith. And one of them is Martin Luther King. And right next to him is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Huge. He's got a statue above the entrance of Westminster Cathedral. Love that.
0: Isn't that cool? Yeah. So, but I read on his Wikipedia that he got arrested in like 1943. And he was also, he was really young. He was was only 39 or something, right? Check
1: this out. This is freaky. Both MLK and Bonhoeffer were pastors. They were preachers. They got PhDs in theology and they both died in April of their 39th year. April of their 39th year? Yeah, they both died when they were 39 years That's old.
0: That's crazy. And look at the
1: impact that, that King has had, and I think Bonhoeffer is, is increasingly having.
0: Was he alive at the same time? Like, Martin Luther King was like a teenager? There was March, some
1: crossover, but but Bonhoeffer died in, in 40, 45, yeah. and King died in 68. So but he was they born... Were alive
0: but King was younger than him. Martin you you would say it was, was probably younger.
1: a one-generation, you know, because King wouldn't have served in World War II, for example.
0: So, right. So, um, but what got you interested in Dietrich von – I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nail it this last time. I swear to God. All right. There's three different ways to say it. Uh-huh. One is the American way. Bonhoeffer. Uh-huh.
1: Okay. one is a little French. huh. No,
0: That's I'm fun. not going to nail that. That's Anthony's And the other one way. is the
1: real German way, which is Bonhoeffer. So I kind of blend them all, and I just say Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer.
0: Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yeah, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yeah, I love that. Why not? I'm I'm going to do like a blended – yeah, I'm like a blended family, blended – Exactly. Yeah, it's great. It's like a latte. So, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you were minding your own business, and you were like, I want to get – And and, I was a baby Christian. You were a baby Christian, and you were like finding Mm -hmm. your way, and then you were like – and then you met Jessica, and you guys were Mm -hmm. in school, and you're like, I'm just so curious, and I'm studying all these different things. Well, even before that, even before that as a teenager – I'm in baby
1: Christian land. I see a bunch of Christians saying they believe certain things, but not really living like they believe those things. And I was like, this is weird. So there's this book that someone recommended to me. He said, uh, a person said, have you read The Cost of Discipleship? And I was like, I don't know what that is or what that means. It's by this guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And it was actually in the church bookstore. It's like, it's the one book you can find in regular church bookstores that's written by like a brilliant, 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 crazy, amazing academic intellectual, but who decided to put on his regular people hat and write a book for regular people. Right. Right? So it's one of the few books you can find in like the regular Christian bookstore that is like deep and philosophical and it kind of tears your brain apart and puts it back together. And so what he says, he opens this book, The Cost of Discipleship, and he says, um, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. What we are after today is costly grace. And what he meant by that was Cheap Grace allowed a bunch of Germans to let the Nazis take over, to start to let their Jewish neighbors be persecuted. He wrote this book somewhere in 36, 37-ish. As Hitler had taken over in 33, the Nazis were starting all their Nazi shit that they were doing. And he was looking around at everybody saying, like, wait a minute. We all say we're Christians. We all say these prayers. We all talk about loving our neighbor and look at all the stuff we're allowing to happen. This is cheap grace. We've got grace from God, so now we're good, right? Great, God. I've got grace. Amazing. Going to heaven. Great. But we're not actually acting like this grace from God
0: is real or transformative or it costs us anything. Stand by. 2.5. Quick break. Getting curious. I'm going to take you on an advertising journey, honey. We'll be right back. Did you know that while over 60% of Americans dream of starting their own business, less than 20% of them ever take their first step? The reason? Building a business is tough. Having built a business or two myself, I know just how difficult the whole process is. But Taylor Brands is simplifying the business journey. From launching and managing to growing your business, Taylor Brands isn't just another tool. It's your online business partner from launch to success. With Taylor Brands, building your dream business becomes an effortless experience. Yes! From LLC information to bookkeeping, invoicing to acquiring licenses and permits, and even setting up your bank account, Taylor Brands handles it all seamlessly. And our listeners will receive 35% off Taylor Brands LLC information plans using our link taylorbrands.com slash jvn that's T-A-I-L-O-R-B-R-A-N-D-S.com com slash jvn so start your business journey today with taylor brands don't you just love when someone looks at you and says what were you up to last night well no matter how late you were up the night before lumify redness reliever eye drops can help your eyes look more refreshed and awake lumify dramatically reduces redness in just one minute to help your eyes look brighter and whiter for up to eight hours. No wonder it has over 6,000 five-star reviews on Amazon. You won't believe your eyes. You know you can trust them, though, because they're made by the eye care experts at Bausch & Lomb, and they're backed by six clinical studies. Eye doctors trust them, too. They're the number one recommended redness reliever eye drop. The one and only Lumify is an amazing drop that will have people saying something's different about you in the best way possible. So check out LumifyEyes.com to learn more. Darling, I was on a vacation recently and stayed at an Airbnb. And then I realized that while I was away, my empty house could be making money, honey. If you're someone like me that is busy and not home all the time, your home could be an Airbnb. And it's actually pretty simple to get started. Even if you don't have a whole house, you could start with just a spare room. Personally, I really enjoy staying at Airbnbs. I really do. I love a good Airbnb. Who is that? Come back, British you. And it really is a great way to like support local economy and support local people. So Airbnb is fabulous. And I know I was doing my British voice earlier, but we love Airbnb. So think about what you could do with some extra cash, whether you're looking to treat yourself to something nice, like a shopping spree or a spa day, or start a whole side hustle. Airbnb can help you be that person. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. If you follow me on socials or listen to Getting Curious and Pretty Curious, then you'll know I've been on a real makeup journey over the last few years. I've especially been enjoying a more colorful eyeshadow moment, and I've been loving incorporating Thrive Cosmetics full line of makeup into my routine. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. One thing that's really major about Thrive is how much they're prioritizing giving back. It feels good to know that when I support Thrive, Thrive turns around and supports the communities around them too. I also love that their high-performance formulas are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free and have zero parabens, sulfates, and phthalates. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash curious. That's thrivecosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash curious for 10% off your first order. Welcome back to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. Cheap, grace, honey, she is the enemy. It is Germany. It is a 1936-37, and it's like first they came for the... Jewish people, and I didn't do anything because I wasn't Jewish. And then mm-hmm. they came for the worker. It was like that whole thing. Niemöller. Yeah. yeah.
1: He was a friend. I mean, they knew each other. Bonhoeffer. They did? Yeah, they knew each other. And, and there were a lot of people letting them come for the Jew and come for the Catholic and come for the socialist. A lot of people were just kind of standing around letting this happen. And Bonhoeffer was one of the early people. When Hitler took power from Hindenburg in thirty three. Bonhoeffer's whole family— including his dad who was like the most respected uh, psychology professor in Germany. He was a psychologist and he was at Berlin, including his mom who was like a powerhouse, including his brothers-in-law who all ended up in this conspiracy against Hitler later and most of them ended up getting killed by Hitler because they were on Hitler's kill list because they tried to kill him, which, you know, understandable. Um, But all of them said immediately in 33, this is six years before the invasion of Poland, right, before World War II breaks out, they're like, this means war. They knew immediately, like, this guy is a warmonger. This guy wants war. Because remember, Germany had been so crippled by World War I and the Treaty of Versailles and all the economic sanctions that were put on them by the victors like uh, France Mm -hmm. that everyone was super angry. And Hitler was that expression of that anger. He was – he said, we're going to – I hate to do this because they're not the same exactly, but he basically said, we're going to make – Germany great again, right? right? Like, he was this figure of economic, like, we're going to make ourselves great. We're going to lift ourselves up by the bootstrap. We're going to – and sometimes to bring people together, um, a demagogue, which Hitler was, demagogue is someone who speaks straight to the people and gets them all riled up and, you know, fists in the air and everything, you need an enemy, right? Yeah. And so the enemy wasn't just France. It was the Jews. And it was these people, they're doing well because they had invested well and they were good bankers and businessmen and they, they kind of lived by certain moral codes. And so they were like, look at all these Jews. They're doing
0: well. Why aren't we doing but well? But there was, was – but what there's – but like not all Jewish people were rich. No. Like there had to be like lots of Jewish people that were like strugs mm-hmm. and – Dealing with this it was and that. they were
1: different. They ate differently. They went to different worship services. They looked different. They wore different clothes. So it's easy to identify. The so they Nazi just group. said
0: the. But it was like I mean, because obviously not everyone no. of any one race is like all richer across 100% the board. One hundred percent true. Yeah,
1: yeah. So not that what the Nazis was saying was true. It was demonstrably false. But they needed certain groups: um, Jews, homosexuals, socialists,
0: uh, gypsies. I would have um, been out so fast.
1: Mm, it would have been.
0: R- Oh I, I can't I can't I I would have I would have just had to have like made a fucking like mm-hmm. mad rush for the and some like, people
1: did some people were like we're out but the Bonhoeffers kind of stu- stood by their like we're German we're proud to be German but this isn't the real Germany.
0: Did this- they have friends that like that like exodist? Like what was that? Like yes. did, did so, lots of people in 33 just start to like run for run for the hills? The thing is most people did what most people do which is it's not so bad. Right? Like this
1: will this will sort itself out, right? Like you're not going to move your whole life just because some crazy guy becomes chancellor or president, mm-hmm. but then it starts to get worse, but it's like a lobster. Yeah. It, it's like slow, yeah. you know, slowly turn up the heat. And by the time it's 39, you're like, oh, it's really hard to leave. It's really hard to get in the country. It's really hard. It was. Yeah. They, so, so, yeah. So what was that like? What was like 33 to 39 like? So it was this kind of era where everyone was, was hoping it would
0: get better, but it continually just by little tiny degrees got worse. Question: Did they, did they have, do they have like, or did they have like midterms then in like a parliament? I don't know about the,
1: um, the Reichstag elections. I'm not an expert at that. But what I do know is that slowly but surely the Nazis had, were gaining ground in the early 30s. Uh, at first they were a joke. But soon they became a force powerful enough, enough that Hitler was able to you know, do the fire at the Reichstag and kind of take over. By 1933, he was able to kind of be Reich Chancellor and then he was almost ultimately powerful within Germany. So by 33, he's taken power. He just hasn't started to do the most crazy things that he would later do. And remember, a lot of Germans didn't know. They just thought they were relocating Jewish people kind of like the, the Armenian genocide. Like right. oh, We're just putting them on trains and sending them somewhere else because we don't like them. I mean the full horror of the Holocaust – was unveiled after um, to, to most people. But what the Bonhoeffers saw and what Dietrich in particular saw was this guy's bad news. And he saw it before most church people, most ethicists, most academics. There were academics in the University of Berlin. So it wasn't just religious people. It was intellectual people as well. And this is part of the problem is intellectuals are really good at building systems to justify their beliefs. Like we'll believe something and then we'll spend a ton of time just looking for the evidence that we call it confirmation bias looking for all the evidence so if you believe hitler's going to make germany great again you can find a bunch of evidence to say look he's making germany great again and bonhoeffer's like look the first place that he looked was the the church people and the theologians and the professors that hitler surrounded himself with started saying crazy things like jesus wasn't a jew which is like what Right. Jesus was the Jew. Like, yeah. he is the He's as Jewish as they come. So when you start to say, wait, Jesus wasn't a Jew, and you realize, oh, this is still a Christian nation, look what they're setting up here. They're setting up a belief system in which you can take Jewishness out of Christianity so that you can do an us versus them dynamic. Now – with an us versus them dynamic, you can separate the groups and then go, OK, you're the bad group. And, and here's how deep it went. It was beyond religion. It was this pseudoscience blood like, oh, you had one-eighth Jewish blood, whatever that means. There's no such thing. But science told everybody, oh, look, you, there's races. There's Because race is kind of a construct. Race is kind of a made-up thing that we came up with right? Like, oh, are you dark enough to become black? Or are you Jewish enough looking to be Jewish? It's very kind of weird. and But science was like, oh, look, we can tell people by their their race. And the Nazis hated black people. They hated a lot of other groups of people. And they hated Jews because they thought they were less than human. They weren't pure Aryan, right? And so Bonhoeffer starts to see this weird kind of Aryan theology creep into the church. And that's how he knew that it was bad news. And I think at that point, a lot of people were still hoping that Hitler would be a blip on the radar, but he wasn't. And it didn't end well for anybody. And Bonhoeffer had a had a brother in law that was like either I think a quarter Jewish or half Jewish, and he ended up helping them get out of the country to England. And he helped some other Jews cross into Switzerland a few years later. So Bonhoeffer was a uh, w- um, a righteous Gentile of the Holocaust. He helped so get people across the border. Some people across the border.
0: Switzerland, just like right south of
1: Germany, right like right mm-hmm. next to like Austria, between Germany and France. Basically, a- and they didn't, and didn't
0: get and they didn't get them.
1: Germany didn't get Switzerland. Um, eventually they were in Switzerland, but Switzerland, remember, is mostly mountains. So it's really hard to kind of control Switzerland. Yeah. And they did the whole weird neutral thing. And so they've they've gotten a lot of flack for like storing Nazi gold, some Nazi paintings and art and things that were stolen from Jewish people and other people. Switzerland is, has a, kind of an interesting history, of which I am not an expert, so I'm not going to go too deep into yeah. it. But Switzerland was a country where Karl Barth, this really great theologian, he kind of went there when the Nazis were like, no, no, Karl, you can't have the top – chair in the University of Berlin, even though you're the greatest theologian alive, we're not going to have you because you're not you're not Nazi friendly. So Karl Barth kind of goes to Switzerland to, to Basel and lives there. And Bonhoeffer and Barth, in my opinion, two of the, the most important thinkers of the 20th century are writing letters back and forth. So we have this really interesting correspondence between them. I know that's a little off off the path, but you have all these countries trying to figure out where they stand vis-a-vis Germany now that Hitler's Getting the military up, and Bonhoeffer, interestingly enough, had traveled a lot, so he had all these international contacts in Spain and especially England. the The Archbishop of of um, his Can't. name was, of Chichester was a friend of his, and he had contacts in America. So, as Bonhoeffer, as the vice started to squeeze on on him and his family, he was able to start to pass information along to his international contacts that that hopefully would weaken Hitler.
0: Which, like, like what? Just like, like their. So for one,
1: um, you want to get into the conspiracy? Yeah. OK. So 1939, war breaks out. Uh, a lot of people are like, this is bad. This is finally, oh, he's a madman, <laughs> this guy leading our country. Because he
0: invaded Poland. Poland?
1: Yeah, and he had already done the Anschluss with uh, parts of Austria and the um, Czech. He took part of Czechoslovakia, the Sudetenland. And so he was – on. He, clearly he wanted to take over Europe. Yeah. By, by by 1939, by September 1939, if you don't know that Hitler's trying to take over Europe, you're not paying attention. Right. And so it gets more and more serious where a ton of people that Bonhoeffer knew, they were part of the sort of bourgeoisie. They were artists. They were academics. They were lawyers. They served in the military. They were like the kind of the historical connection to Germany's past. And a lot of them were like, this is bad. This is not what we're about. Like we want to be more like the Greco-Romans. We want to have culture. We want to be strong, but we also want to be smart. And Hitler was kind of this upstart, like, no, it's all about power and it's all about might and it's all about weapons and it's all about taking people over and doing what we want and enforcing our will and being the Ubermensch, right? Like the Superman, like being super powerful and, and crushing all the like, people who aren't as good as us. And so the Bonhoeffers were involved in a circle of people who started to formulate a plan to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Now, what I'm not saying, because I need to say this to be clear, is that Bonhoeffer was ever an assassin. He was not. He was never going to take a gun and shoot somebody. Although at one point, his best friend, Eberhard Beitka, who wrote the massive huge biography on him and helped get all his writings out there, Beitka was unknowingly driving around with explosives in his trunk that they were going to use to try to blow up Hitler. So that's mm. how close it was. It was such a close circle that people came to Bonhoeffer as almost a pastor, even if they weren't religious. You know how in crazy times people get a little bit more religious? Yeah. Like, it's a foxhole conversions. Yeah. Like, it was crazy. So people were like, let's ask the pastor. He might know. Yeah. <laughs> like, <clears throat> so uh, let's ask the guy who writes ethics stuff for a living and thinks about these things. And so he became sort of like a a, a conscience for this group who eventually carried out an unsuccessful assassination attempt on Hitler in, um, I believe it was 43. And that's how Bonhoeffer got arrested, sent to Tegel prison, and then eventually to a concentration camp. And he was killed along with most of the male members of his family and extended family um, uh, about two weeks before the war ended, before the Russians liberated the the Mm. concentration camp that, that he was hung in. So they
0: just did that to like get rid of people who were like big dissidents and like – Yeah, Hitler was like, you tried to kill me. I'm wiping
1: you all out. So there's this huge investigation where they started to sniff out who was in the conspiracy. They found this folder of documents that was never supposed to fall into Nazi hands. And they just started arresting people including high up military people because they had this whole plan that if they could get Hitler out – They knew that if they just killed Hitler, his next in command would take over. So you have to take out a group. Right. And you have to have respected military leaders ready to take over these positions, shut down the government a little bit, and then make peace with England. And here's an interesting thing. Bonhoeffer was able to get information through his London bishop contact to Churchill. He was able to get information indirectly to Churchill that said, here's our plan. If you support it, um, we can have peace. And Churchill, by that point, there was so much blood and so much treasure that had been spent in the war that Churchill, or at least his advisors, I don't know if he personally made this decision, were like, no, we want to crush you instead because Germany had made such a mess of things. Right. And so by this point, it was almost like, no, we don't trust you. We don't trust that even if, remember, World War I happened, World War II happened, even if we get rid of Hitler. There's no telling you Germans might keep on doing shenanigans and right. you're, you're back into it. So we're gonna we're gonna really end this. Yeah. We're gonna make sure you can't get up off the mat. Right. And like just yeah. And that was so sad. It was very sad because they were patriots. They were German patriots. Think about this. They loved their country so much they were willing to violate their principles because most of them didn't like killing people. Bonhoeffer was an avowed pacifist, so he no violence ever. to violate their consciences and to fight against their own country in order to do what they thought was right.
0: If Trump's administration, like, really turned full, like, Handmaid's Tale, like, I would feel like they aren't really, like, American, so I feel like I would, like, go off. That's what they said about Hitler. He's not really German. Yeah. And he's redefining what it means to German in a way that doesn't fit. And there's so—I mean, I feel like this—I mean, just sitting and talking to you, there's, like, sometimes when I hear people, you know— like the, a part of me, like here's like my grandma, and she's like, you know, you know, oh, get off at Jack. Like my family called me Jack, so like, mm-hmm. you know, get off at like it's like like you were saying, like it's not that bad. Like uh, like mm-hmm. we'll get him out in like mm-hmm. twenty. But how reminiscent for this for this like being your expertise? Like how much does this stuff going on like remind you of of, of like what's your take on like now and like. The mullion, like the mullion's clause, honey, and like and, and just all the conflicts of interest and all of the things that are going on today. Like, what's your take on it? I think it's too easy to say that Trump is Hitler. I just think that's too easy. I think it's
1: um, it's just like a, a an example floating out there that you can just take and say. And 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 there are some real differences between Trump and Hitler. And there are some real differences between our democratic system in America today and Germany. We have a stronger free press, right? Like every day, you can open up your news app and see people writing things about how terrible Trump is, right? You weren't seeing too much of that in Germany. Right. You, you weren't really allowed. Bonhoeffer wasn't allowed to write books about the Old Testament because it was too Jewish. Right. Which he violated, by the way. But, you know, people weren't allowed to write certain things. So the censorship, the government was a lot more powerful. Americans are stubborn. And we're like teenagers. We're like, don't tell us what to do. We'll do the opposite, right? Yeah. And we have a pretty, there are a lot of bad things about a two-party system. But one of the things that a two-party system actually keeps from happening is for a minority uh, party to get really powerful really fast. Because it's always this really annoying butting of heads between Democrats and Republicans, but that actually keeps like a small party like the Nazi party from getting a coalition together and being able to take over really fast. So there, we have some buffers. Some of the stuff that are the founding um, – the fathers and mothers of our country put into the constitution even though the constitution's changed a great deal because it's kind of a living document as well there's some buffers here right like our state governments are a lot more powerful so even if trump became the trumpiest trump that could ever trump is seattle you think, yeah. Yeah. You, think yeah, like, yeah. you think Massachusetts, where I'm from, is going to be like, oh, sure? No, they're going to be like, we're Massachusetts. Yeah. We still have, you know, our Massachusetts, we still have universal health care. We have all this stuff. So our federalist system and our division of power into branches, even though it's been weakened a bit over the years, and the presidency has gotten, in my mind, too powerful, so that, you know, Barack Obama was amazingly powerful, but most people here in L.A. loved him. But then you take that same power, you give it to a guy like Trump, that's a problem, right? So... So even though the presidency has gotten really powerful, we still have kind of a good system in which I think there's more buffers to uh, preventing Trump from becoming a Hitler. And, And the other thing I'll say is I think Hitler was smarter than Trump. And I think he was. Uh, the situation was more dire in Germany, way yeah. more dire. And so, you know, we have like four percent unemployment or something
0: right now. So people, yeah, they were like in a hot shambly mess. Like they had wheelbarrows World War full of
1: cash to buy a loaf of bread, right? So things were much worse. So what I would will say is there's some there's some there are a couple of Nazi-ish tendencies. To to Trump, but I don't think there's enough of them to where we're going to see things like concentration camps and things of that nature. Which I'm that's not really- which
0: well, and, and I think obviously there is not concentration camps. You know that like that was a you know a, an atrocity that you know in proportion that I don't think that we've seen. But there the way that like undocumented immigrants mm-hmm. are being like torn apart, and yep. I mean. Our country has fifteen hundred children that like are, you know, unaccounted for That's and true. that we aren't like, quote, like legally so even though it's not like it, it is apple oranges and it's not the exact same thing and I understand that our economy isn't as bad. It's I just the entire time you were like recapping that like Bonhoeffer story, like there are just so many things that feel like people mm-hmm. are saying, like, oh it's not that bad and midterms are right around the corner and mm-hmm. like it, it does I do feel like maybe we are in an oven and it's like at two seventy five or like three hundred or something mm-hmm. and like Hope, like hopefully these midterms are just going to like throw a big gorgeous you know Wrench. yeah cuz even if it's like different republicans just like mm-hmm. more we need more Jeff Flakey republicans even if we can't get like a like a you know a, well you're going to get senator Mitt Romney and Mitt Romney does not get along with Donald I Trump I got to say that's sexy Mitt Romney he is such like a silver he's good fo- oh, he he's is so I'm like hold me mm-hmm. like you were just your silver foxy mm-hmm. daddy ways like you were mm-hmm. just I will help you sign that fucking treaty Mitt <laughs> Let's just do something great. Um, where can people find you? What do you what What do people need to know? What do you think? Yeah, Tell so
1: I you know tweet and stuff at Ryan M. Huber, but also I help run this politics and popular culture, not popular culture, politics, culture, economics website called ARC Digital. It's ARC, digital.media. And me and my co-editors, we pick what we think are the most intelligent, well-thought-out uh, commentary takes from across the political spectrum. We've got libertarians. We've got socialists. We've got conservatives. We've got liberals. We've got everybody in. Between. They, they write about Iraq, they write about Trump, they write about economics. So we've got this amazing group of writers, and I would just have people go there and check it out because I think it will help us as a society. Websites like ARC, who aren't like, we're conservative or we're liberal. And yeah, I just, like to read it from everywhere. It's, it's a huge variety. So ARC is about bringing different views to the public. And Medium, which is a great website, has po- has partnered with us and really helps us and and we help them but with, with the content. And what I would say is an educated population who's reading a, a diversity of viewpoints is the best defense against the kind of Trumpist easy answers that are like, they're bad,
0: we're good. Cute. Love that. It's a great uh, way to go out. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us and coming in and talking to me. Thanks, Jonathan. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. My guest this week was Ryan Huber. You'll find links to Ryan's work and socials in the episode description of whatever you're listening to this show on. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at JVN. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much, Quinn, for letting us use your gorgeous music. And you guys, we finally checked out her website, so get all up on that, honey. And if you enjoyed our show, subscribe to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And don't miss out on our future episodes. And you guys, thank you so much for leaving the reviews. Thank you so much for subscribing and staying around to listen. And if you feel like you want like tell your friend who needs to listen to podcasts like how to actually find a podcast on their phone well don't let me stop you girl get on that phone of theirs and tell them how to do it so many people don't know how to find a fucking podcast like can you help them so that we can start charting again more majorly I'd really appreciate it I love you guys bye